Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live 
we moved uh, to a different location at Quill Creek until we get that worked out. Uh, but uh, most of the ranges are up and running, and uh, we're finally starting to. Uh, we we've had plenty of rain over the last few months, and uh, we're we're running at our. I believe this is our third uh, wettest spring uh, so far in history. Uh, 2007, I guess, was the wettest spring, but I think we're getting close to nine inches. Uh, of water for the spring this year here in Central Texas. And all the state, we're getting a lot of rain. And uh, we're finally starting to, to to dry up just a bit, which is which I'm very thankful for because uh, it was hard to get anything done with, uh, with so much rain. You know, it's hard to get. There are a lot of places like here at our ranch. Uh, we were nothing but a mud bog for a long time, and I know that there's several other, lo- other locations that uh, have been affected by the rain. We had a lot of flooding here in Texas recently, uh, here in central Texas also. Now, I know better than to curse the rain because uh, you do that and it will disappear for good. I'm hoping that there won't be a drought this year, and uh, with the rain that we have had so far, it's finally allowing me to to uh, drill some post holes so I can put up some overhead cover here at the uh, Davila location so that we can have some overhead cover to keep people's brains from baking out uh, this summer. And uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm sure the shooters are too. And uh, certainly once it's up, it'll also uh, help to keep folks from uh, from getting soaked in uh, in winter or cold rain too at the same time from keeping them uh, from getting their brains baked out. So looking forward to that. Now, I'd like uh let me give you the number here. It's 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. And at the beginning of each show, we'd like for you guys to uh call in and tell the folks on your local Appleseed cruise, tell them thank you. Thank you for the work that they've done uh for you, if they have, maybe they've crossed some, uh, uh, made some goal that they set for themselves, maybe they shot the rifleman standards. Maybe they uh, passed one of their PCs, or they uh, got a promotion to Red Hat or Shoot Boss or something like that. Or maybe they're just, uh, they're just doing a good job every day out there talking to ranges, or they are uh, doing a great job as promotions, stuff like that. Then give us a call. And let them know. Let them hear their, their, the fact that you appreciate them. Let them hear that over the air. Uh, and uh, our number is 347-308-8790. Also at this time on the show, uh, if you guys have something that you would like to, uh, some information you'd like to put out, or if you'd like for us to uh, uh, to mention uh, a commercial venture, that you're involved in. This is the time that we do that. Uh, you can call in and let us know what we're doing. And hopefully the folks that are listening, the rest of the uh, Appleseed uh, folks, will uh, patronize whatever business uh, that, you're, that you're offering because we want to help our Appleseed brothers and sisters. And uh, so if you have some type of commer- uh, commercial venture, something that you're selling, some kind of uh, service that you're offering, something like that, then 
then we want to we want to uh hear from you. All right, once again the number is three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. All right, uh we've talked over the last uh over the last couple of months. We've been talking uh, like every other week on different aspects of uh of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, we've been talking about uh the battles of Saratoga. We've been talking about uh last uh our last episode we talked about uh healthcare and medicine and uh then we uh talked about the Battle of Saratoga. We talked about the Burgoyne campaign and the way it affected uh, the American Revolutionary War. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to talk tonight about uh, spies, treason, and mutiny uh, in the American Revolution. So, and uh, we'll be getting to that in just a second. But like I said, if you want to uh, call in and tell anyone on any of your crews thanks, now's the time to do it. 347-3088-790. The intro music that you hear for the show, that is from Poker Face. It's called Control. And it's a great song. And uh, they've got a great deal of music that... uh, that is considered uh, like revolution rock. And uh, when I talked to uh, Paul from Poker Face, uh, he said not to call him a libertarian or or any other, don't try and pigeonhole him in any, uh, any kind of, uh, with any kind of a title. <clears throat> but uh, a lot of their stuff probably does uh, have its roots in uh, in libertarian thinking. But they, they do a great job on their music, and we certainly appreciate them uh, loaning the music to us for uh, for the radio music. And uh, that was Control that you've heard. We've played some others on here, too, like uh, uh, Freedom and uh, and several others. And Paul, and Paul came on show the guest one time. We may have him on uh, a little bit later. But they play uh, Revolution Rock at uh, uh, different venues across the United States. They are regulars at the uh, uh, Knob Creek machine gun shoots and stuff like that. We've got uh, uh, Blue Feather and Thomas Scott, who uh, are uh, appleseed instructors, and they have a, they make handmade soap, which is just absolutely fantastic handmade soap, and it's extremely affordable, and. Uh, you can't go wrong getting the soap because you get some soap and uh, they get uh, uh, money to keep them on the instructing trail for Appleseed. So it's a win-win situation. We have uh, Jimmy from Desert Eagle Farms uh, who who sells uh, long-term storable food, and uh, as part of your being prepared uh, process, we'd like to make sure that you have enough food to get you and your family through any tight situation. It doesn't have to be the end of the world. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, Mayan calendar floods or alien invasions. 
It could just be uh, a uh, black eyes blizzard, or you know, you could uh, you could break your leg uh, doing some work or something and not be able to work for a while. And knowing that you had uh, a month or two months of food stored could be a uh, could be a very uh, calming have a very calming effect on your situation if you're going to be out of work for a time. So take your time now. Contact Jimmy at Desert Eagle Farms and talk to him about. Uh, putting together some long-term storable food for you and your family, all right? Uh, we've got several other folks, and I believe the uh, the call screener, uh, he would usually put those into the uh, the online chat that follows the show with me. He usually puts those in there. And uh, if you have some type of a product or service that you'd like for us to get out to the uh, to the listeners, we'll be glad to do it. So just uh, either send me a PM or an email, and uh, I'll be glad to do that. Or you can call into the show. You can call into the show, and uh, and uh, we'll get you on there as you talk about your your product there. All right. The well, a lot of times when folks think about the uh, American Revolutionary War. It's thought of in uh, in more of a romantic terms. You know, most people, uh, when they think about the American Revolutionary War, they hear the drums and fife playing, and they see the flag, the uh, the Betsy Ross flag flying, and they, they see the drummer and the fifer, the guys that have the bandages around their head, and they see the soldiers in blue and uh, them marching and, it's a very glorious and honorable thing, but just as in any war, any uh, any conflict, there are certainly uh, there are certainly going to be many cases of spies, treason, and uh, and mutiny. There have been in in on every side in every conflict, and the American Revolutionary War was no different. Uh, you know, we've talked previously about uh, the connection with the with the British background to the American War, right? That the colonists were not they, although they were on a different uh, on a different continent. It's not like they were not British citizens because they were they were British citizens. And uh, and when you look at a breakdown of the uh, the folks in the American Revolutionary War, it comes roughly to about a uh, third, a third, and a third. And that's a as far as a third of the folks not having a a decision or not being on for one side or the other, and then a third of the folks being for the uh, the colonists, and a third being loyalists, being wanting to remain loyal uh, to the king and to England. So the colony was split up in in its loyalties, and uh, this made it kind of a uh, well, as with any revolution, it's kind of a special type of war in which you you cannot easily apply the same standards uh, of wars between nations. You know, in the first place, it was it was very difficult to know at just 
what point the conflict between the colonies and the mother country became a war between America and Britain, right? Because uh, for the longest, certainly until well after the siege of Boston, the there was hope among everyone, Washington included, for reconciliation, that this was not going to be a war between uh, America and Britain. It was, it, was, it was supposed to be a conflict between the colonists and the mother country, one that could be resolved and, re, and would, uh, would leave the colonists still uh, as citizens of Britain. And, uh, and it was kind of, uh, there was kind of a confusing point where, where they wasn't sure if, if a lack of enthusiasm for separation or for war actually became a treasonable offense. You understand what I'm saying? That if somebody says, uh, no, I, I'm, I, I, I don't want to have a war uh, with, uh, with our own country, England. I want us to remain English citizens, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we remain English citizens. Now, at, at, at one point in the American Revolutionary War, that's, that was just the rhetoric that you might hear from somebody. But after a certain time, that becomes treason. And, and it certainly did cause a great deal of trouble. Uh, there, uh, there were some folks who, uh, who remained loyalists too long, uh, who stayed in the colonies and remained vocal loyalists too long and were branded and sometimes even, uh, uh, put on trial, uh, for treason. And, uh, uh, let's see, and we have several folks, uh, several folks who were were out and out traitors. You know, we had uh, uh, Dr. Church, who was on the uh, the committee of uh, safety, and several others, along with uh, Benjamin Franklin and other folks uh, from the very beginning, who was privy to all the information going on. Uh, in the Committee of Safety, and that was being transferred directly to General Howe. So you had some folks who were just loyalists and uh, vocal loyalists and who remained vocal loyalists, as I said, for too long, which uh, ended up getting them in trouble. And you had folks who were uh, who were out-and-out traitors, who were out-and-out treaters, uh, uh, treasonous doing uh committing treasonous acts. Now and what about uh what about the Hessians, the German soldiers who were they were paid uh mercenaries uh fighting under the British army. What about those guys when they were when they deserted? Now were they were they free of any obligations to the uh, the British who had hired their services from the prince and uh, and the circumstances of the war were such that it it was difficult to know just what constituted aid and comfort to the enemy and uh, even more difficult to hold comfort or aid treasonable and, and almost impossible to punish it uh, as a treason because it, it was. Uh, 
it was indeed a very mixed up war, and one in which uh, the participants kind of flowed in and out of the action, and uh, and the soldiers too uh, kind of floated in and out of the action. They would they would show up the fight, and then they would they would go home for a while to take care of their uh, their families or their farms, and then uh, some of them would come back, some didn't. And so, so like I said, it was uh, when you have a when you have a nation that's already established, like we have today. We already have a nation that's established. Uh, we have long time laws. We have precedents uh, in courts of law. Uh, we you, we know already the rules. If you don't show up for duty in the military at the and you're at the appointed time at the uh, appointed place in the proper uniform, ready to give the proper greeting of the day, then that is a uh, legal offense. But what were the legal offenses uh, for a nation that was just beginning? They were they were doing it on the fly. And, uh, and there was a lot of stuff that was very confusing. Now, there's, all, there's a plenty of stuff that wasn't. Uh, if you got caught spying and... Uh, they would they could try you or they could not try you. It could just be a very simple uh, commander's court uh, if somebody were to be caught behind enemy lines spying, and uh, they could be shot or hanged right then and there. Espionage, treason, and mutiny. Now, these things uh, had meanings and connotations which, which were a bit different from those that we attach to them today. Now, by modern, modern standards... Uh, men like Charles Lee and Silas Dean were subversives, if, if not actual traitors. But then so too were Fox, Camden, uh, Barr, Wilkes, others who championed the American cause in Parliament. Because at the same time that you had the, the loyalists over here acting, uh, uh, remaining loyal to the king and to England, you had the folks who were over in Parliament, you, the, the names I just mentioned, that that were uh, that were making statements and speeches, which were saying that what the what England was doing in America was wrong. So, so both sides have this going on now. By my modern standards, uh, armies that, that melt away after battles or or sometimes even before them, uh, are guilty of desertion. And by modern standards, uh, a refusal to obey an officer's commands or a refusal to, to abide by rules or refusal to to fight except after approval by a military town meeting, uh, these things are all mutants. But, but if you're going to look at the American Revolutionary War, uh, it's best to to put aside your your modern understandings or the uh, the modern standards and look at the American Revolution on its own terms. Now, recent wars that uh, that America fought have depended much on uh, intelligence, uh, counterintelligence, espionage, counterespionage. 
security, uh, underground movements, and so forth. Uh, you take the the uh, uh, the war in Iraq uh, when we sent in the uh, uh, the special forces troops into Iraq and then into Afghanistan uh, in order that, that they could train and uh, and get the local ground forces up to standards and use them as their actual fighting uh, as the actual fighting tools commanded by or or guided by uh, American Special Forces. But there was actually little of this uh, of what we would call modern espionage or or spying in the American Revolution, which which was in a fact uh, really a, a much less sophisticated war. Uh, when you have when you, when you have thousands of folks, uh, you know, in the colonies, uh, people in every town who is more than willing to tell everything you know, then then really you don't need a lot of spies. You can just go up and you can ask somebody in town, uh, when did the rebels come through and what were they doing, etc. And they'll go, well, you know, we saw them coming through yesterday and. And they had about uh, 15 to 20 wagons of hay. We guess we're taking it to the to wherever they keep their horses. So, the with less sophistication or less sophisticated war, you need less sophisticated means of gathering uh, intelligence, especially where you have a uh, a large group of loyalists. And if those loyalists feel like they're not there's not going to be a penalty for giving up your information, then uh, you know, then there's not a whole lot of reason to uh, to have a bunch of spies. <clears throat> now, there there were there were spies, and and there was an espionage system that uh, that was trying to be built up on on both sides, uh, mainly uh, mainly by the colonists, and uh, certainly by uh, by General Washington, he was all throughout the war. He was obsessed with gathering intelligence, as well he should have been, and uh, and uh, as well as everyone should have been. But if you read it, you don't find very much on the the British side, I mean, much speculation on what the enemy is going to do or why he's going to do it. Uh, or really much much uh, of an attempt to gain uh, 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 information through intelligence services through a uh, through an actual uh, espionage service but Washington did uh, a great deal of this now what about treason uh, in the show's notes i I, I mentioned that uh, that Benedict Arnold, who was an amazing uh, general on the colonial side, and we've spoken about Arnold's exploits uh, a great deal recently. You know, we talked about uh, the Battle of Lake Champlain and how he uh, how he had built a navy out of scratch after his attack on Canada and prevented. Uh, the the uh, the southward thrust from Canada into New York, he prevented or he stalled it, uh, which 
caused it to be set back a whole year and gave the economist a year's time to continue to prepare. His uh, his leadership at the, both of the battles of Saratoga, and he was uh, actually a very amazing general, one of the best generals on uh, probably actually on both sides. Uh, but when you hear Benedict Arnold's name now, it is synonymous with treason. If uh, if uh, your buddy is supposed to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, keep quiet about something, and he tells somebody else about it or something, and uh, uh, and you call him a Benedict Arnold, uh, you know, or anybody who is uh, who uh, who doesn't play by the rules uh, and who uh, uh, who acts like a traitor uh, is immediately called a Benedict Arnold. So. So his name has become synonymous with that, uh, and it's one of the best knowns. And we'll talk about exactly uh, what he did and why in, in just a few moments. But there were quite a few, there were quite a few uh, traitors, uh, Benjamin Thompson, for example, or Doctor Church. But Arnold is. Uh, is certainly the, the the only one that's real, the only main one that's really known, and uh, and Washington, General Washington, was certainly correct when he said this is the first instance of treason of this kind, and that nothing is so high an ornament to the characters of the American soldiers as their withstanding all the arts and seductions of insidious enemy, and that's right. Arnold's act of treason was was really uh, very bad. Uh, all right, I've got a, a note from I've got a note from the call screen that says that I'm breaking up bad. I've got a bad phone connection. Let me, uh, uh, as far as I know, I'm, the phone should be. Uh, the phone should be fine, although I heard the, uh, the intro music didn't sound that great whenever I was uh, whenever I was listening to it. So perhaps there's a bad phone connection from Blog Talk. Let me see. Uh... All right, can you uh, can you hear me any better? Now I just uh, switched phones. Can you hear me any better now, uh, call screener? Uh, if it's the same, uh, or if it's bad, I, I may attempt to uh, uh, to put on some music for a second and try and call back in and maybe get a different connection to the server or something. Uh, Arnold, then Arnold almost cost Americans the Revolutionary War. It was uh, a very, very close uh situation uh, and and yet we really can't uh i mean we we have to be kind of a, at least a bit grateful because he was really uh, for that period he was a, really our our only 
our one and only genuine villain. So <laughs> what would we do without him? Uh, so <clears throat> so he certainly had his place. Now, not only was was treason of itself, it, it, it did occur, but it was rare, uh, mutinies. There were mutinies too, but thankfully they were rare too. You know, the the American soldiers were not professionals, uh, as we know. Now there there were some soldiers who had who had been in the military, who had been uh, who had fought under the British, but for the most part, the American soldiers uh, were all only semi-skilled uh, militiamen. As I said, there were some soldiers that uh, they had fought for the British, uh, who had fought uh, in the French and Indian Wars and stuff like that. But for the most part, the American soldiers weren't really professionals, and uh, I think and they really kind of clung to their amateur standing, uh, at least for the first couple of years. Uh, the majority of them didn't want to be professional soldiers. They wanted to be what they were, which were uh, citizen soldiers, and they wanted to defend their, first, their towns and communities, and then their nations, and then they wanted to be able to return back to the civilian status. Uh, the American Continentals were, they were often required to serve far longer than they had ever bargained for or signed on for, and and the majority of them were were for, forced to uh, just serve without pay, or or they would end up being paid, but it would be they would be paid in a in a worthless specie, in a way a, a currency that had no value. You know, they'd be they say here's your pay, and uh, here is a uh, you know a, a five dollar specie, but you go try and spend it, and they say well we'll give you uh, we'll give you twenty five cents for that. For that five dollar species, so so they were not, they were they often were in, had uh, terrible living conditions, uh, no money, exposed to danger, harsh discipline where you could be uh, beaten or flogged uh, uh, in discipline. Uh, they were living out out of doors quite often in the summer heat and the winter snow. Uh, they didn't have food. They didn't have clothes, uh, doctors, medicine, uh, and yet, you know, there were very few mutinies. And those that did occur, uh, and this was chiefly uh, around 1781, were merely desperate protests against the conditions that had become so intolerable that uh, they had to do something. They weren't. These weren't. These mutinies weren't mutinies in order to shift their allegiance to the British. They had no intention of uh, of mutinying and, and committing treason or, or going over to the British side. They were mutinying and saying, hey, we're starving to death and we're naked and diseased and we're still out here, but, but you know, in God's name, someone... Please do something to help us. The the American soldier, uh, as 
gotten the rough end of the stick ever since uh, day one. <clears throat> and they continue to do so today, all right? Uh, so the mutinies that we're going to talk about weren't uh, weren't shifts in allegiance. They were uh, almost to uh, 100%. They were just simply protests over their conditions or pay. Uh, first off, let's start with uh, with Dr. Church. Now, we know that Dr. Church, uh, Colonel Benjamin Church, uh, was actually uh, a hero of King Philip's War, and uh, he was uh, one of the notable figures in the history of the Plymouth Colony, and uh, something of his fame was transmitted to his grandson, Benjamin Church of Rhode Island, who managed to... Uh, to mess it up. Uh, Church studied medicine in London. He returned to Massachusetts uh, uh, to an established position, and he had a really nice practice. You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't building this from the ground up. Uh, you know, as, as I said, he was kind of a legacy. He was on the inner circle of the Patriot leaders. Uh, he had been appointed to the First Continental Congress and then he's made uh, director and chief physician to the American Army outside of Boston uh, during the siege of Boston. Yet from the beginning, from, the, from day one, his conduct had been a bit ambiguous, and uh, Paul Revere actually suspected that his patriotism was not really uh, a pure patriotism. Now, that probably wasn't... Uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, that Paul Revere suspected a lot of people of of, uh, of not being pure patriots because Paul Revere was a very pure patriot. And uh, in order to live up to his standards, you had to you had to maintain a, a very high uh, a very high standard. But Paul Revere actually suspected that uh, the church may not have the purest uh, uh, of intentions. Now. For reasons that were never, that really have never been wholly explained, because because Church was never, he was questioned about this, but there was no, there was no inside information. He didn't write down why he was doing what he did. Uh, he didn't answer the questions about what he did. Uh, uh, and and we're really not sure why, but uh, for for whatever reason, he had entered into uh, a, a questionable, at least at first, if, if not actually treasonable, correspondence with General Gage. Uh, so uh, there was a cipher letter uh, that had been given information on the American military arrangements that that Church was sending to Gage, and it was intercepted by... Uh, Henry Ward of Rhode Island. He was on a, Dr. Church was unable to explain it away. All right. Uh, and he was condemned by a court martial to imprisonment, then released on parole. Uh, and, and then he was, uh, I, I guess basically he was banished and uh, they told him to leave the country. So that next year, he set sail for the West Indians, for the West Indies uh, Islands, and uh, 
was lost at sea, never heard from again. Now, we know from his records, we know that uh, that he was sending letters to, uh, to Gage, and we know that uh, if you've read the uh, Paul Revere's ride, you know that <clears throat> Paul Revere sent a letter to his wife uh, asking for some clean clothes and some money because he, he, he was out of both. And this was at the time when the uh, Committee of Safety had Paul Revere doing the, quote, outside work. Uh, and we know that the letter from uh, Revere, uh, from uh, Revere's wife to Revere, along with, uh, I think it was a couple of hundred pounds uh, of money, uh, never made it to him because... Uh, I believe about 100 uh, plus years later, they found the correspondence in uh, Church's uh, memoirs in his uh, papers and stuff. So the the total of what he gave to Gage and the reasons why he did it are really are not that quite are not clear. But we know that he did, and that was uh, from day one, from the very beginning. Uh, Let's see. We have uh, we have folks who were uh, committing other crimes, uh, such as arson. Uh, you know, if you wanted to try and throw a wrench uh, into the workings of uh, of one's particular colony or one uh, one side or the other in the American Revolutionary War, one of the easiest ways to do so was through arson because everything that uh, anyone had back then was flammable. Uh, there were very few and very ineffective uh, methods of putting out fires. And it was very easy for fires to destroy uh, whole towns. Uh, you could uh, set fire to ships uh they were docked in port. You could set fire to warehouses of goods, uh, and uh, and it wasn't hard. And uh, there was a lot of folks that were doing it in the American Revolutionary War. On the side of the colonists, and on the side of the of England, the loyalists. Now, the, the revolution had certainly had its quota of. Plots and counterplots, and, and some of them were, you know, were actually fairly reasonable plots. Uh, some of them were were very melodramatic, and uh, and uh, you know they were they were uh, out kind of outrageously thought of things. And uh, one of these one of these plots was known as the Hickey plot. And it was named after the ringleader Thomas Hickey, who was one of Washington's guards, who uh, ended up being hung in June of 1776. Now, uh, what this plot was was to be the assassination of General Washington, and uh, another of the plots uh, was a plot of arson. Uh, and this was attributed to John the Painter. Uh, in England, and uh, John the Painter tried to send. We're going to talk about it in just saying John. John the Painter tried to burn 
several cities down in England. Now, he claimed that Silas Dean, uh, who was uh, in Paris at the time, had actually encouraged him during, during the early months that Dean was in Paris uh, to set the fires in uh, the ports of Portmouth and Bristol. Uh, but Dean did uh, Dean did a, uh, a pretty good job of keeping keeping it on the down low because there, there's no information uh, to corroborate the Dean's complicity in any in either of these. Uh, all right, let me read you a letter, uh, and this is this concerning the the plot uh, by one of Washington's guards. And what they were going to do is, uh, whenever the the British attacked New York, then uh, then uh, the plot was to assassinate the general, uh, to spike and uh, sabotage uh, a lot of the guns, the uh, the artillery there in New York, to make it easier for the British to to come aboard. All right, this is a, a letter dated June twenty fourth, seventeen seventy six. Uh, my last to you was by Friday's Post, since which a most barbarous and infernal plot has been discovered among our Tories, the particulars of which I cannot give you, as a committee of examination consists of but three who are sworn to secrecy. Two of Washington's guards are concerned. The third, they tempted to join them, made the first discovery. The general report of their design is as follows. Upon the arrival of the troops, uh, this is in, they're, they're talking about uh, in New York, they were to murder all the staff officers, blow up the magazines, that's uh, the buildings that house the gunpowder, and secure the passes out of the town. Gilbert Forbes, gunsmith in the Broadway, was taken between 2 and 3 o'clock on Saturday morning and carried before our Provincial Congress, who were then sitting but refusing to make any discovery, he was sent to jail and put in irons. Young Mr. Livingstone went to see him early in the morning, told him he was very sorry to find he had been concerned, and as his time was very short, not having above three days to live, advised him to prepare himself. This had the desired effect. He has to be carried before Congress again, and he would discover all he knew. Several have since been taken, between 20 and 30. Amongst them, our mayor, who are all now under confinement. It is said their party consisted of about 500. I've just heard that the mayor has confessed bringing money from Tryon to pay for rifle guns that Forbes had made. Burgoyne is arrived at Quebec with his fleet. All right, so uh, early on, you have the uh, the loyalists, and I'm sure that they were uh, in connection with with British Army officers <coughs> were plotting to assassinate General Washington, blow up these stores of gunpowder, and then uh, defend the passes out of the town. Uh, whenever the the uh, the British uh, made landfall on in New York, and 
and obviously with with 500 folks, including the mayor of New York, uh, with a uh, a pretty good contingent of uh, of traitors and uh, and saboteurs. All right. Uh, towards the close of the of the year 1776, and in the beginning of the ensuing year 1777, much confusion, apprehension, and suspicion was excited by the machinery of a wretched enthusiast and incendiary, since well known by the appellation of John the Painter, but whose real name was James Aiken. This man was born in Edinburgh and was bred a painter, possessing an extraordinary spirit of rambling with a strong propensity for vice, had passed in the course of a few years through an uncommon variety of those scenes which attend the most prolific and abandoned state of a vagabond life, a kind of life for which a manual trade, however followed, affords the most perfect opportunity and cover. All right. Well, they're saying that uh, that uh, I guess in, in kind of a, uh, a nice way as possible that he, he just wasn't that great of a guy. A strong propensity for vice uh, and, uh, and an uncommon variety of those scenes which attend the most prolific and abandoned state of a vagabond life, and an uncommon variety, all right? Among his other exploits, he had passed through several marching regiments of foot, from each of which he deserted as soon as opportunity served after receiving the bounty money. So what happens here is you go to a, a, an army unit, you join, and they give you a, you know, a, a pretty good chunk of change for joining at the time. And uh, he would stay there, I guess, for a little while and then desert and go to another regiment and say, oh, my name is so-and-so now. And uh, and they would give him a, another pretty decent bounty of money and and he would stay there and leave there, all right? Uh, in various peregrinations to the different parts of England, he alternately committed highway robberies, burglaries, petty thefts, rapes, worked at his trade as occasion invited, villainly prompted, or fear or necessity operated. Well, he's like I said, he just he doesn't sound like that great of a guy. Uh, and what he ended up doing was uh, he ended up trying to uh, burn down the ports of uh, uh, Portsmouth and Bristol, and. Let's see, here's what he did. Uh, he went to the different ports, and he looked at them, I mean, I guess he studied them and tried to figure out the ways that he uh, he could get them to set on fire. And then, he, then he took, quote, wonderful pains in the construction of fireworks, machines, and combustibles for the purpose but was strangely unsuccessful in all of his attempts of this nature. So he tried to start fires several times in several places, and they ended up catching him. Uh, uh, he ended up 
uh, being questioned, and uh, and there was a great deal of confusion on on who, uh, why he did it, or who he did, etc. And uh, anyway, uh, they they had him on trial, found him guilty of trying to burn down uh, the two English forts, and uh, and they hung him. So <clears throat> they, as you can see, quite often the the attempts at sabotage were. Uh, were 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 not very successful. They were a bit uh, they were a bit amateurish and uh, and unsuccessful. Uh, now we know that uh, that you hear the story of of Nathan Hale, and uh, you of course hear his words. Uh, and let me uh, let me jump to here. Well, first of first of all, let me give you the let's start off with the story of uh, Benedict Arnold. Now, as we know, as we talked about, Arnold was was pretty much of a hero uh, for the. Uh, for the colonists, I mean, he'd done a great, uh, a great service to them, but but he had a uh, a terrible character flaw, and that was his his ego. And uh, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, he got into uh, into a huge argument with Gates and. Uh, and did not like the way he was treated by him, uh, the way that he wasn't mentioned, his participation in the battles of Saratoga was not mentioned, and uh, he ended up getting wounded. And uh, while he was uh, while he was getting better, Congress went ahead and restored his seniority to him because he'd been passed over. Uh, for seniority uh, before the Battle of Saratoga, he was not a, he was he wasn't happy about that. But they restored it to him. But he still felt that that it was restored to him, like in kind of a a pity situation, rather than trying to right the wrong that that he he should not have his seniority should not have been passed over in the first place. Uh, and during the time that he was uh, recuperating from his wounds, uh, he began gambling and uh, and hanging out with uh, with some unsavory folks. And the results of which, of his unhappiness uh, with the way he'd been treated, and his uh, and he wasn't optim he wasn't very optimistic about the nation's future. Uh, <clears throat> sometime early in uh, May of 1779, uh, Arnold met with uh, with Stansbury, 
And Stansberry, in his uh, testimony, said that he went secretly to New York with uh, to tender Arnold's services to Sir Henry Clinton. And uh, he, he was ignoring Arnold's instructions uh, to him to involve no one else in the plot. Anyway, Stansberry crossed the British line and introduced... Uh, 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 and came very across the first line and, and went to see Jonathan Odell in New York. And Odell was a loyalist working with William Franklin, who was the last colonial governor of New Jersey and the son of Benjamin Franklin, who was uh, a loyalist. Uh, on May 9th, Franklin introduced Stansbury to Major Andre, who had just been named the British spy chief. And uh, this began the secret correspondence between Arnold and Andre. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, Arnold would use his wife, Peggy, as uh, she was a willing uh, intermediary. And uh, this lasted about a year, and it culminated in Arnold switching aside. So what happened is... Arnold uh, decided to to give over the uh, the fort of West Point, uh, along with all the plans for it and uh, and the ability uh, to make it possible for the the British to make landfall and capture West Point, which would uh, have the effect of uh, of splitting off, splitting uh, or driving a wedge in between the rebels. And he was going to do it for approximately uh, 20,000 pounds, which is about, uh, right about one and a quarter million dollars, say, in, uh, in uh, $2,012, and, uh, which is a, a great deal of money. Anyway, he set this up. And uh, and was get he he got the plans you know drew up all the plans uh, drew up the uh, the plans not just for the fort but on how they were to to take the fort etc. Uh, and once he had taken once Arnold had been given command of West Point which he asked for and was given for the specific purpose of being able to surrender it. Arnold began systematically weakening the defenses of West Point and of the military strength, sending uh, different troops off, uh, the repairs that needed to be done on the fort, on the uh, uh, the defensive positions like the, the chain that ran across the Hudson to keep the ships from being able to sail up. The, the stuff, that was either... Uh, uh, not the repairs weren't made, or they were uh, the different things were taken down, etc. Uh, uh, he also uh, was writing to Washington. I don't know if this was to cover himself or not, but he was writing to Washington saying that uh, uh, there was a lack of everything, of supplies, of uh, of everything that he needed in order to defend the fort, and at the same time. He was trying to drain the supplies, West Point supplies, so that if there were a siege, it would be more likely to succeed. 
the uh, officers under him, and some of them were, you know, long-term associates of his, they began uh, grumbling and complaining about Arnold's, uh, the unnecessary distribution of supplies and what they thought, and what it could well have been happening, was that uh, Arnold was, was selling supplies on the black market uh, for personal gain, you know, to keep the money. Uh, anyway, Arnold uh, was due to meet with uh, with Major Andre uh, uh, on, uh, let's see, on August 30th, Andre sent a letter uh, accepting Clinton's terms uh, for his switching sides and for his betrayal. And he proposed a meeting uh, to Andre, with Andre. And uh, this was uh, the, uh, the letter was sent uh, by William Heron. He was a member of the Connecticut Assembly, assembly that uh, Arnold thought he could trust. Heron, who was, and this is kind of a comic twist, went into New York unaware of the significance of the letter and offered his own services to the British as a spot. And uh, he then took the letter back to Connecticut where, suspicious of Arnold's actions, he delivered it to the head of the Connecticut militia. Uh, this guy, the guy he gave it to was General Parsons. Parsons, who was seeing the letter written as a coded uh, business discussion, he he just kind of laid it aside. He figured it was just part of uh, of Arnold's, uh, you know, ordering supplies or something, part of the business running the fort. He just laid it aside. But four days later, Arnold sent a ciphered letter with similar content uh, to New York through the services of a prisoner of war's wife. Now, eventually a meeting was set up for September 11th. And uh, the meeting was thwarted when <laughs> when British gunboats uh they were in the river there in the Hudson. Weren't they weren't told about Arnold's coming out. Anyway, they started shooting at his boat, so it was turned back. Anyway, on September twenty first, Arnold and Andre they finally met uh at Joshua Smith's house and uh and, and ended up discussing uh the uh the point of the of the treason of the handing over of uh, West Point and uh, and the uh, all of the paperwork Arnold gave to Major Andre and uh, he, had, he actually also wrote him out passes so that he could pass through the lines and along with the plans for West Point and everything else. Now, at also at the same time, Arnold persuaded Andre to change out of his military uniforming to put on a civilian uh, clothing. Now, this at first doesn't sound too bad. It sounds kind of smart, right? Except that's one of the the tenets uh, of spying is to be to be caught in civilian unif- uh, civilian clothing behind enemy lines. That'll get you. That'll get you. You killed uh, every time, even today. Uh, you know they got uh, there. There are several cases of uh, German soldiers dressed as Americans 
being caught and executed in World War II. Anyway, as Andre is uh, leaving this meeting, he gets uh, he's captured by three Westchester patriots, and they search him. They found the the uh, papers exposing the plot to capture West Point. They're found. Now, at first, the guy that, that one of the commanders that the paper was given to was going to send them to Andre. I mean, to uh, to Benedict Arnold you know, to warn him of it, but he didn't. Instead, uh, Washington was on the way to West Point to meet Benedict Arnold, so he kept the papers there and then sent them to Washington. And uh, but he did send a note to Arnold. Saying, "Hey, I've got I've I caught this uh, the guy Major Andre, and I've got these plans and these papers. You know, they're talking about the uh, uh, about handing over the uh, the fort of West Point. He sent that to Benedict Arnold. So Arnold, as soon as he got that, he was having a meeting with his uh, with his junior officers. He as soon as he got the letter, he he got up, he uh, excused himself, and took off." Now, Andre, meanwhile, is caught, and uh, uh, well, let's finish up with with Arnold. Arnold goes to uh, down to the river, gets his buddies, and and tells them to row him out to the the British craft. Now, they they are they are necessarily hesitant about rowing out to the craft because it's a British craft, but. Arnold convinces him he's just going out there to parlay, uh, you know, with the, the British and everything will be okay. But they row to the ship, and the uh, the oarsmen are uh, arrested and put in irons, and that uh, in order to keep them from rowing back and and telling what they uh, what they've just seen. Now Andre is uh, he's arrested, and this is is kind of a. Uh, I don't know if it's a sad story, but uh, he was actually uh, he was actually uh, a great. Uh, everybody liked Andre, Major Andre, uh, and uh, even during the occupation of Philadelphia and New York by the British Army, all the folks liked Major Andre. He was a nice guy. He was uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he was. Uh, uh, yeah, he was just well liked. Uh, anyway, they uh, they captured him, and the British at first, actually on, on both sides, both sides of the British and the American, the colonials, neither thought that he would actually be executed because number one, he was a general officer, and and that just wasn't something you did. To general officers is to execute them, and uh, and so they're on both sides. Neither thought that that would actually happen. Uh, Washington actually convened a, a board of senior officers to 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 investigate the matter and find out if this actually was uh, a you know a case of uh, espionage and then what should be done about it. Now, the trial that they had, the investigation, certainly contrasted with 
with uh, Sir William Howe's treatment of Nathan Hale uh, four years earlier. Uh, Arnold's defense was that he was suborning an enemy enemy officer, which is uh, is supposedly an advantage you can take in war. And uh, of course, to his credit, he never tried to pass the blame onto Arnold. He he told the court that he had not desired to go to be behind enemy lines, and he certainly hadn't planned it because the route that Arnold had had given him, he. He didn't think he was going to be behind enemy lines, but the route that Arnold gave him uh, mistakenly sent him behind enemy lines. So he ended up behind enemy, being caught behind enemy lines in civilian clothing. And, of course, his defense defense of this was that because he was a prisoner of war, he had the right to escape in civilian clothes. However... On September 29, 1780, the board found Andre guilty of being behind American lines under a feigned name and in a disguised habit and ordered that Major Andre, Adjutant General to the British Army, ought to be considered a, as a spy from the enemy and that agreeable to the law and usage of nations, it is their opinion, he ought to suffer death. Uh, later, uh, Glover, Glover was an officer, was one of the officers there, witnessed, uh, uh, on Andre's, uh, the day of Andre's execution. <clears throat> uh, and Sir Henry Clinton, who was the British commander of New York, he did all he could to save Andre. Uh, who was actually his favorite aide, aide but but when uh, when General Washington offered to exchange Andre for Arnold, uh, Clinton refused because on or certainly on the uh, colonial side, on the American side, they would much rather have had Andre, who they considered to be the actual, uh, you know, the actual. Uh, main name in this treasonous episode, <clears throat> but Clinton wouldn't do it. He wouldn't trade any one for the other, and uh, and Andre actually uh, appealed to George Washington uh, to be executed by firing squad because he he considered that to be more of a gentleman's death than than being hung by the neck until war, but. But uh, Washington played it by the the written rules of war as they were, and he was hanged as a spy on October 17, 1780. And uh, while he, they said that while he was a prisoner there in uh, uh, of the American, the, that the American officers lamented his death as much as the British, because I guess they became friends with him while they were while they were holding him, and one of them wrote of him. Uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote of him, Never perhaps did any man suffer death with more justice or deserve it less. The day before Andre's hanging, he drew with pen and ink uh, a likeness of himself, which is now owned by Yale College. And uh, Andre, according to witnesses, refused a blindfold and put the noose around his own neck himself. All right, that's uh, that is the... That is the account of 
of Andre and Arnold. And uh, and then, so, of course, from that we have uh, we have our villain, Benedict Arnold, and uh, and we have. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, we have Nathan Hale, who who was one of the at the time he wasn't uh, he wasn't as uh, as famous as he is now. Uh, and you know we all know his lines. Uh, I regret that I have but one life uh, to give for my country, and that was actually a line. Uh, it was taken out of a, a kind of a famous play at the time called Cato. And uh, <clears throat> what happened there was, as I said early on in the, the war, uh, Washington was very, uh, he, he was always trying to get intelligence uh, in any way he could. He was always trying to get uh, intelligence. And he, he wanted, he ran a network of spies and uh, uh, he he asked for folks to go and get him intelligence, and uh, the uh, uh, and Hale, at the time, was a captain, uh, volunteered to go, and his buddy said, asked him, he said, why are why are you going? He said, "You're you're the the least uh, the least likely person ever to be a spy. You just don't have the uh, you don't have the, the the spirit for it. You don't have the uh, you don't have the disposition for it. And uh, nonetheless, I guess Hale thought about it for a while and uh, and went ahead and did it." And uh, but he was so uh, he was so inept that uh, that he was caught very readily. <clears throat> let me uh, make it, let me take a look quick at the notes here, so I can give you the uh, give you the the correct information on it. And of course, one of the things that Hale did is he, not knowing how to, uh, not knowing how to be a spy, uh, he, he was just, uh, he was just kind of playing it by ear and, uh, and didn't do the greatest of jobs. <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Under the date of September 22nd, 1776, Howe's orderly book contains a laconic entry. It says, a spy from the enemy, by his own full confession, apprehended last night, was executed this day at 11 o'clock in front of the artillery park. The spy was young Nathan Hale, who, after Harlem Heights, had volunteered to go on a mission to secure intelligence about British truth movements in and around New York City. He was apprehended on Long Island and identified as an American officer reputedly by his own cousin, Samuel Hale, 
He was brought to the city the day after the fire, interrogated by General Howe, summarily turned over to the provost marshal and hanged somewhere in the neighborhood of the present site of Grand Central Terminal. This curt account of the tragic incident is in a contemporary paper. Uh, now, the, in this account, there's, there's nothing there about uh, Hegel's immortal last words, which, uh, which it seems like the first recording of them, uh, the first reporting of them was uh, uh, on February 13, 1777, that Hegel declared on the gallows, if he had 10,000 lives, he laid them all down, if called to it, in defense of its injured, bleeding country. But it's the memoirs of William Hull, uh, who was to surrender Detroit to the British in the War of 1812, that we are indebted for the commonly accepted last words as recorded by Hull's daughter, Maria Hull Campbell, a contemporary ballad, probably the best uh, to come out of the war, commemorated Hill's mission, arrest, and execution. Now, but this is in the War of 1812. This is uh, four decades later. Uh uh, apparently, uh, you know, Hale had gone to uh, he had gone to get uh, in, in the intelligence right after uh, uh, after the the Battle of Harlem Heights and after they had taken <clears throat> New York City. Now, if you remember, there was uh, Washington had asked Congress what to do with New York. He said, uh, "You know, should we should we leave it for them? Because if they take New York, then they're going to have uh, they'll have winter quarters." And uh, Congress told him in no uncertain terms, "Do not destroy New York." And so he did, and so they had winter quarters. But uh, depending on who you speak to. Washington had made it known in, in, in no uncertain terms that that had it been up to him, the city would have been burned, you know, burned to the ground and left them with nowhere to quarters. And uh, and the majority of New York uh, at that time, the majority of New York were all loyalists. They were all still loyal to. Uh, to England, it was almost uh, when the uh, when the colonial forces were there. It was almost like they were in a like in an occupied town because you had so many of the uh, the the folks, the citizens of New York, uh, being unhappy with the uh, with the rebels. So so there you go. New York uh, City was. Uh, Was uh, was pretty much of a loyalist, uh, a loyalist center. All right. Once Washington had made it known, uh, it supposedly that there were uh, a lot of folks who had made it their business to set the town on fire. Now, according to the records uh, from the from the uh, the investigations after the fire. There was no, uh, there was never any, uh, anyone that was actually caught trying to set fire. Now, there was, uh, I believe, one guy got caught, 
cutting the rope handles on the fire brigade buckets. That was the, they would have like a cart that was full of wooden buckets. And these would be used to, uh, where you would pour water into them and then they would just be thrown by hand onto the fire to try and put the fires out. And they caught one of the guys, while the fire was going on, they caught one of the guys cutting the rope handles on the buckets. And one of the British soldiers uh, punched the, the, the guy in the head and then threw him into the fire. And he burned to death. But uh, there was no one that was that was actually uh, that was actually caught starting fires. And according to the records, the fire started in a uh, in a pub and got out of hand because of the the wind and the weather uh, burned down a uh, a huge chunk of the city. But because they had just uh, evacuated the city and they had just lost the battle, the the colonists were suspected, the colonial army was suspected of uh, of sabotage. Now, this happens, this is happening, uh, this happened just before uh, Captain Hill got caught. So, no one was in much of a mood to listen to anybody's explanations. And uh, Hale, of course, he went and got a room and he he actually told the the folks he was renting the room from that uh, he was going to try and uh, and and spy on the the British and find out their movements and and of course, like I said, the the majority of the folks in New York being loyalists still, they went straight to the British in Fordown and he was arrested. He tried to tell them that he was a, a school teacher. But he just had the documents and money stuck in his boot, way too much money and way too many documents for the school teacher. Then his cousin, who knew him and was a loyalist, loyalist uh, informed on him. So that was pretty much it. And and he was unceremoniously hung the next day. Uh, and I read you what he's supposed to have said and then uh, and then as I said he wasn't uh, he wasn't famous then uh, it came about it came about later it came about several decades later that that his words uh, uh, really uh, became more famous and there was a ballad uh written about him and uh, let's see <clears throat> it said it was written in 1776 but I don't believe that it was I think they're just talking about Nathan Hale in 1776 <clears throat> anyway uh, Captain William Hall of Connecticut is, is written down in his manuscript and then, like I said I believe this was later I don't believe he, he wrote it down when it happened. I believe he wrote it down later on, even maybe after the war. He says, in a few days, an officer came to our camp under a flag of truce and informed Hamilton, then a captain of artillery, but afterwards the aide of General Washington, that Captain Hale had been arrested within the British lines, condemned as a spy, and executed that morning. Uh, so they sent... Uh, uh, they sent an officer under a flag of truce to, to inform.
form, Washington. <clears throat> I learned the melancholy particulars from this officer who was present at his execution and seemed touched by the circumstances attending it. He said that Captain Hale had passed through their army, both of Long Island and York Island. And he, pro- he had procured sketches of the fortifications and made memoranda of their number and different positions. When apprehended, he was taken before Sir William Howe. These papers, concealed about his person, betray his intentions. Uh, he at once declared his name, his rank in the American Ar- Army, and his object in coming within the British lines. Sir William Howe, without the form of a trial, gave orders for his execution the following morning. He was placed in the custody of the provost marshal, who was a refugee and hardened to human suffering and every softening sentiment of the heart. Captain Hale, alone, without sympathy or support, save that from above, on the near approach of death, asked for a clergyman to attend him. It was refused. He then requested a Bible. That, too, was refused by his jailer. On the morning of the execution, continued the officer, my station was near the fatal spot. I requested the provost marshal to permit the prisoner to sit in my marquee while he was making the necessary preparations. Captain Hale entered. He was calm, bore himself with gentle dignity and the consciousness of rectitude and high intentions. He asked for writing materials, which I furnished him. He wrote two letters, one to his mother and one to a brother officer. He was shortly after summoned to the gallows, but a few persons were around him, yet his characteristic dying words were were remembered. He said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. And this was written by uh, General William Hall uh, uh, in his memoirs. (laughs) Our captain, no, he was a captain at the time, and uh, and when he wrote this, he was a general. So, he, so obviously, it was, it was much later on in his memoirs. Uh, so, the and you can see that the the way that it, it was was handled the way that Andre's execution was handled was much different than, than Hale's. The way that that Washington treated Andre and uh, was much different than the way that Howe did. Now, this was, of course, Hale's execution was four years earlier. Uh, and at the time, they the British were very loath to extend any type of courtesy to any of the rebels. They were to be treated uh, uh, certainly more more like rebels than enemy soldiers. But there was certainly a, a big difference in the handling of the two events. Now, the year of Arnold's treason... Uh, was also the year of mutinies and dissension. There was a there was a rough year there. 1781 was a was a pretty rough year for the troops. They had been for the most part they had been fighting for quite a while. A good many of them had, and 
And as I said earlier, they had not, uh, they very few had received any type of pay, and certainly not on a regular basis because there was no money uh, in the Continental Army. Uh, the system of supplies had not, uh, while it was constantly being worked on, it, it certainly was not a, a functioning, uh, a really well functioning system, uh, even up until the end of the of the war. Uh, there was no way to get uh, clothing, or uh, and food was always lacking, and uh, and and you weren't being paid. And at a certain point, even the best of folks get get fed up with this. Uh, there had been a minor mutiny in Washington's army at Morristown back in in May of 1780. And that was uh, when two of the Connecticut regiments had defied their officers and they demanded their back pay. They they wanted, I believe they they had not been paid for, uh, well, for well over a year, year and a half. And they they wanted their pay. Now it wasn't like they that they took any any active role in attack anybody or anything like that or shot anybody or anything else. They just, uh, they basically said they weren't going to do anything else uh, and nobody could make them uh, without their pay. Now, what Washington Washington did was sent in a large unit of Pennsylvania troops and the Pennsylvania troops disarmed them. And it came to that point where where the mutant mutineers had to decide: are they are they actually going to to start shooting on their fellow troops, or are they going to surrender their arms? And they did; they surrendered their arms. And then, the in January, in the next January, it was a turn. It was a Pennsylvania troops' turn to to mutiny. These are the guys that had gone and stopped the uh, Connecticut troops. Now. These soldiers, as I told you earlier, they they had genuine grievances. They'd gone uh, for months or even years without pay. They were in rags. They were they were eating uh, dry bread and cold water. That's uh, that's all the food they had. If they had that, uh, there are cases of the folks that were uh, they cut up their shoes and boiled the leather. Right. I mean, most folks don't consider leather relate to be a food item, right? But it is animal. It is animal skin. So you and you can boil it and eat it. There's not much nutrition there, but uh but that's what uh, a lot of them were reduced to to doing or 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 eating grass. A lot of them were, you know, they would uh they were eating uh uh different grasses or different weeds that they that they could gather. Uh and the worst of it all for most of these folks is they had enlisted for three years or the duration of the war. And and certainly I don't think that any of them thought that the war was going to go on beyond three years. And yet it did. And a lot of the folks found out that it was going to last Longer than three years, and they were going to be in until it ended, and they were going to have to shoot, they were going to have to endure these hardships for longer than three years. And 
the, the particular occasion of the Pennsylvania uh, mutiny uh, occurred on the night of January 1st, 1981, and it was the appearance in the camp of recruiting agents offering uh, $25 in specie for new recruits. And uh, and that uh, that uh, that set these guys off twenty five dollars in specie for new recruits, uh, and these guys had not been paid uh, for months and months. But uh, they were going to give uh, basically almost a year's worth of pay to these to the guys that they joined up. Uh, twenty four hundred of the men from the Pennsylvania force were involved in the mutiny, which is, uh, which I believe up to that date was one of the largest, one of the largest forces to mutiny. And uh, on January 3rd, they ended up uh, at Princeton, and they they basically elected spokesmen from the unit to, to go to Congress and present their case. And uh, Pennsylvania's President Reed ended the mutiny by uh, exceeding to most of the, the Pennsylvania troop terms. Uh, meantime, word of the outbreak uh, of the mutiny had made its way to General Clinton on the British side, who promptly sent two spies to go and talk to the Americans uh, to try and get them to come over to him, to his side, to try and get the the Pennsylvania forces to go over to the British side, and of course, to their uh, you know to uh, to their credit, the spies who showed up and started talking to the Pennsylvania troops were immediately seized and uh, strung up by the neck without uh, without uh, uh, really uh, any kind of ceremony at all, right then and there. So that kind of shows that they, they weren't. They weren't mutinying because of different ideological differences uh, between what they wanted, what they wanted as soldiers and as Americans. Uh, it was because they had no money or food, and which is a pretty genuine reason to be upset. Uh, but the word of these mutinies kept spreading. And uh, a few weeks later, there were uh, three New Jersey regiments that mutinied. Now, Washington, up to this point, he he tried to listen and and tried to uh, to not deal so harshly with the folks. But I think at this time that he realized that if he didn't do something about it, that it was going to continue to spread and create havoc within the, the already very fragile uh, American lines. Anyway, uh, Washington sent a pretty large force uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to capture the New Jersey regiments, and uh, they did. They captured them by arms. They arrested all of the ringleaders and executed them all. Uh, and it was very rapid, very a very quick thing. He didn't think about it. As soon as he heard about it, he sent the force out there with orders to arrest the ringleaders and hang them. And the, the and then in June, uh, some 300 troops uh, just 
they demonstrated in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Now, this is actually this is in June after the war is over. After the war is over, there were 300 troops that traveled uh, to Independence Hall in Philadelphia and started uh, demonstrating outside while Congress is inside. And Congress promptly uh, snuck out the back door, got in their horses and carriage, and ran away to Princeton and uh, escaped. Uh, and I think that if you if you look at this, if you actually look at, at the at the information on it, I think you'll see that <clears throat> that overall that for me, most of the one of the most surprising aspects of it is that uh, over the course of the eight long, bloody, hungry, thirsty, cold, sick years, that there were actually so few mutinies, and that uh, and that that so many of the American soldiers who weren't professionals. Now, this was the this was the fire and the anvil that created the uh, an American fighting force that uh, that had an unbroken line from from that day from from that time until now. But at the time, so many of these folks they were not professionals. They were they were just volunteers and they were amateurs and uh, I'm just always surprised that they that they endured so much for so long and that they they stayed uh many there 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 were no general officers that stayed throughout the whole war uh, uh well i mean there was general washington and general green and and knox was a a general officer uh, midway in the war and he stayed till the end but the, when he first started he was a colonel but those were the only three generals the only three general officers that were there for the duration, Knox, Green, and Washington. The rest of the general officers either came and went uh, at different times, but there were a great number of the enlisted men, of the of the regular troops that were there for the duration, for eight long years, who suffered a tremendous uh, amount of privations and and who ended up not getting getting paid for for almost any of their time at the uh, at the end of the war there were a great many troops who were far far from home and and who had no money the money that that they had been paid by the Continental Congress was worthless and many of them had to take jobs and work for uh, a year, some even had to work two years in order to get enough money that they could make it back to their homes. Uh, to make matters even worse, I think one of the one of the severe blemishes on this time period is that that speculators, uh, much like the folks who take advantage of others uh, currently in the stock market, uh, speculators. And, and some of these guys were in the government, uh, fixed up a plan to where they went around and they bought the specie from 
the soldiers. They said, "Okay, guys, we're gonna we're gonna do you a big favor, and we're gonna buy this species from you for uh, you know a half penny on the dollar." And uh, of course, since it was worthless, these guys were selling it. And at the same time, they had lobbyists uh, in on Congress, and they were up there lobbying Congress, saying, "By gosh." You need to do the right thing. You need to make this right for these troops. But the whole time that they were doing this, talking Congress into making good on the money, they were out buying it up as fast as they could from the soldiers. Once they'd gotten all the money uh, secured from the soldiers, all the the uh, uh, the species that had been uh, that had been issued. They got Congress to make good on the money. Then they turned around and turned that money in, and they made a huge profit on it, uh, which I think is an absolutely shameful aspect uh, of the of the aftermath of the war. But you know, it, uh, it one of the one of the constants uh, of our nation, it seems, is that. Uh, we depend so tremendously on our American fighting men, and and once they have done their job, we certainly seem to treat them in in horrific fashions a lot of times. So that's all I'll say about that. Uh, uh, if you have any questions. Uh, if you'd like to call in, there's still plenty of time. Three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. Three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. If uh, if you have any questions uh, about the show, or you want to make any comments about the show, or if you want to uh, uh, to give any notices about uh, any upcoming events. Or if you want to tell any of your crews or local crews thanks or anything like that, there's still time to do so. We'll still be willing to take your calls. Uh, the uh, uh, the the folks uh, and when we talk about the mutinies in the uh, in the uh, common armies. <clears throat> any militias in the colonial armies. <clears throat> like I said, I certainly don't want to uh, disparage them as these mutinies as, as being ideological ones, ones where they, where there was a, uh, you know, a disparity between the between the beliefs of uh, of the the army fight for independence for for the nation. Uh, and for the belief that we should, or for the belief that we should still be British citizens, because it was it was in no way that it was simply uh, a rebellion against uh, against what they perceived as injustices, and which I which I certainly think that anyone would perceive as an injustice. Uh, you know when we when we talked a while back about the the troops in the winter of seventy seven uh and I tell you guys that uh I'm just absolutely 
I'm absolutely floored every time I think about that, about the the attacks on Trenton and Princeton in in the middle of a harsh winter and about the troops being uh, in, in near nakedness, them being uh, a good many of them barefoot. And this is in winter, guys, in winter in New England. All right, even if you don't live in New England, all right, just... Uh, just imagine snow anywhere, okay? And imagine yourself uh, walking in the snow. And you don't really have on uh, any long pants. Because number one, they a lot of folks at, at the time were still wearing small clothes. And that's a breeches that just went to your knee. And they would wear stockings past that. But uh, the clothes were not, uh, they were a lot of times, sometimes more robust than what we have today. But a lot of times they weren't as robust. And, uh, and they didn't last that long. So by the time that these guys were were uh, prepared to make the winter attack on Princeton and Trenton, they were in sometimes just a pair of shorts uh, with no shoes, uh, rags uh, tied around their feet, and uh, and maybe a blanket if they had that on them. And the attack was in freezing weather uh, the, ma- the majority of the time, but then it would it would warm up enough that it began to rain and sleet. And these guys are marching through the night. No pay, no food, no medicine, no clothes. And uh, I got to tell you, I just don't, I don't know how they get it. Uh, just the thought of it now. And of course, I'm not a young man anymore. Uh, and when I was a young man, I did uh, I did quite a bit of stuff like that with the military and and on my own and and I'm sure it was a lot different then. But I'm telling you right now, just a, a thought. Uh, and, and remember too that they weren't they weren't in a big military base uh, sitting next to the fire before they attacked. They they'd been living outside for weeks, no tents. They'd lost all their gear. Uh, when uh, the uh, the forts fell, and they were forced to abandon it, abandon it, uh, and retreat across the uh, the, the uh, Delaware. Uh, so they were living outside as it was, and uh, and I think about this, and I ask myself, and and was was am I uh, the same caliber as those guys? Could I do that? Could I suspend, uh, you know, my my comfort? Could I? Uh, muscle through the pain and the and the hunger and the cold and and do that <clears throat> and still be happy about it. Still be happy about my nation uh, for asking me to do these things and and then not paying me, not feeding me. And they did, and they did, and they were victorious. And it changed. It changed the outcome of the war, and that changed the outcome of the world. The reason the world is to a great deal exists in the way that it does today is because our nation exists. And our nation exists today because just a handful of folks decided that they weren't going to give up. They weren't going to give up. They weren't going to 
They weren't going to lay down. They weren't going to accept defeat. They weren't going to surrender. Even though, by all accounts, they should have. They, everybody said they should have. Everybody thought they were beaten. Everybody said the war was over. It was lost. But these guys didn't. And you know why? Because they it, it, they didn't surrender. I've got to tell you this, too. I'm talking about it uh, with several... Uh, with uh, several of my buddies, and uh, and every time I see some show where they where the guys uh, they feel like there is no there is no hope for any positive outcome, and and they decide to uh, uh, to save themselves. I don't know what from what, uh, but they decide like to shoot themselves and uh, shoot their buddies or whatever, so that. Uh, they won't have to go through whatever horrible death it is. And I'm 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 always just amazed by that. Because I gotta tell you this. There is absolutely no possibility whatsoever of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat if you surrender. There's absolutely no way. It can never happen. The only way it's gonna happen is if you hold out to the very end, if you hold out to the very end, to the point where uh, that that everybody else around you is saying uh, your cause is lost, there's absolutely no chance of winning, absolutely none, and you're still there and you're still holding out and you're still fighting, <clears throat> and and somehow, some way, your opponent, the enemy, makes a mistake. And from that mistake, you take your, you take that opportunity to achieve victory. And that's the only way that's going to happen. Because if you've given up before that point, uh, <laughs> your any chances of of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat are long gone. All right. Uh, we've got a caller here. I'll take a, a call just to. Uh, to give you a chance to get on, I just saw the number coming up here, and I don't think that uh, the call screen has talked to you yet, so I guess I'm taking my chances. Uh, area code 760, you're on the air. Area code 760-500, you're on the air. Can you hear me? All right, well, you're probably just listening then. Uh Uh, we got about two minutes. If anybody wants to call in, you got about two minutes to do so. 347 you got you can I'll give you if you call in, I'll give you a chance to uh, to get in and uh <clears throat> and uh, uh say your piece if you want. <clears throat> I think next week uh we may uh we may call uh uh Mr. Colorado to uh See how he's doing. I haven't gotten an email from him yet, so uh, we may call him and find out what's going on. Because we want uh, Mr. Colorado to attend an apple seed. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but he called in uh, a week before last, or maybe it was uh, three weeks ago. He called in uh, to talk about the, the the horrible conservatives. And they're gun toting and and they're just they're destruction of the nation. And 
difference of opinion between he and I on uh, on what was causing the problems in the nation or the right ways to fix them. But I think that by the time it was over, we we did uh, we did come to an agreement. That was he was he was going to go to an apple seed as long as I promised that uh, we weren't that, that when he went to one. They weren't going to use the opportunity to uh, hunt him down and shoot him. And uh, so uh, call screener, remind me, and we'll, uh, this next week, we'll call Mr. Colorado and try and get him to an apple seed up in Colorado and get his uh, get his uh, attendance moving for him. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I want to thank everybody. Uh everybody uh for listening tonight and uh I'd like to remind you guys to continue to uh continue to work on your skills at home. Uh if you've been to an Apple Seed Rifle Marksmanship uh program, then I'd like to make sh- I'd like you to make sure that you are doing your uh, your dry firing and practicing your rifle marking skills at home, and you're just using your time at the range uh, in order to verify that that uh, that homework is being done properly. I'd like for you guys to make sure that you're continuing to prepare for you and your uh, you and your family uh, to get through hard times, and uh, you can do that by making sure that uh, that you understand what hard time hard times can be, and that you're uh, make sure you have uh, whatever it takes to uh, to get through those hard times, and you've thought about it and you've prepared for it. <clears throat> All right, we'd like to uh, invite you to come back uh, and uh, listen to the show again this coming Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Once again, I apologize for last week for not having a show last week, and uh, and we'll double up on uh, on one of the days in the in the next week or so, and. Uh, and if, of course, if ever you have any guests that you would like to hear on the show or you'd like to uh, to see on the show, be sure and uh, send me a message, and we'll do our best to get them on. Uh, you all guys are always welcome to call in. You're always welcome to uh, uh, to give your suggestions on the air or off the air on ways to make the show better. Um, I promise you I'll, uh, I'll listen to them and give it consideration. All right, uh, thank you all. God bless and keep you and watch over you. And uh, God bless and keep us on track on our mission. Uh, and we'll leave you with uh, with uh, control from Poker Face. And uh, we'll see you again Thursday, seven p.m. Central. Good night, everybody.
Some good smoke. Why not? 